comfortable and safe where this is going and welcome <laughs> to the downer front podcast the official podcast of downerfrontpodcast.com my name is warren and i will be your host this evening if this is your first time che- uh, checking into our podcast thanks so much for joining what we do here is we drink a bunch of beverages and we uh, review some movies some tv shows and just have a good time uh we kind of go around the horn and kind of talk about what we've been drinking what we've been watching then we kind of do a bit of a recognition of sending us sips before we get into our full review uh for tonight we actually going to be we're talking about bohemian rhapsody from director with an asterisk brian singer because we know he didn't finish directing director. this movie uh, starring Rami Malek, Lucy Boyton, and a bunch of other people in this actual film. So I'm going to toss it over to one of my favorite people that I've ever seen, uh, the mouth of the South, Mr. Brylin. Brylin, what's going on, man? What you been drinking and what you been watching? Oh, hey, that's me. How's it going tonight? Uh-huh. Uh, what I'm drinking right now is the last of my Woodford Reserve that I've had for about five months, just because I haven't drank that much. But take care of it tonight. Uh, what I've been watching recently is a small TV show about a group of super-powered individuals that are outcasted and have to band together to save the world from impending doom, which is called DC's Titans on the DC Universe app. Uh, I've watched nice. the first four episodes of it, and it didn't really have a good flattering trailer when it was first shown at Comic-Con. Um, a lot of people got hung up on the phrase, fuck Batman, because of it. Um, but uh, the first episode, I would say, was very meh. But two, three, and four are really cool, and they're done really well. Um, this is like CW Dark. They, it's like if they took the production stylings of Gotham, but had the creative minds behind CW, which it does. Greg Berlanti's running the show along with Jeff Johns, who's writing most of it. And they're able to bring in uh, some unique takes on some well-known characters like Dick Grayson and Raven and uh, Starfire and um, Beast Boy. Uh, But what's much cooler is the side characters they've introduced so far. Like they've done like almost perfect Hawk and Dove in this series and also Doom Patrol. So it is amazing to see these other characters be brought to into real life. I still think like this type of show and CW shows as a whole, they're entertaining. They're definitely different approach to the comic book genre than what the Netflix series have done uh, with Marvel's uh, shows. But I still enjoy them, and I'm actually enjoying watching this show. So I'm going to stick through it for the rest of the season, see how it ends up. And is that app free? That app is free for the first seven days. And then you got to pay $7.99 a month. Mm, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, Brylin, it's always great to see your face and hear your voice. So uh, thanks for joining in tonight. Thank you. I'm going to toss it over to my best friend that we hang out. Uh, we hang out often. Uh, I am swear that we're friends. I'm, I'm sure of it. Uh, it says it on Facebook. Uh, Mr. Mocha. Mocha, how's it going, man? What you been sipping and what you been watching? 
Hey yo. No. What's up, everybody? How hey yo. Uh, very glad. Oh, that's yeah, Brown with the callback. Thank you very much. So happy to be here tonight, everybody. Um, I tonight I'm sipping on a delightful little beverage from my local craft brewery brewer. -er? I don't know. Your it's called a. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm coming from the from the bodega, <laughs> um, but it's called Rice Against the Machine. It is by Mickler Brewing Company in San Diego. It is a hoppy lager brewed with jasmine rice and Idaho 7 hops. Uh, I was trying to stay on theme for tonight's show, and this was the closest thing to a musically related beer I could find. Um, but also it kind of goes in line with Freddie Mercury and his bucking against the trend with everything he did. So I'm totally down with it. As for what I've been watching lately, I recently completed my run-through of Season 2 of Castlevania. And let me tell you, this show was dope. Um, for anyone who doesn't know or isn't familiar, Castlevania is a video game series of which last year Netflix put out a four-episode uh, miniseries. It was originally supposed to be a movie that got passed along and fell into development hell until Netflix picked it up and chopped it up into four. Um, it was successful, so they did a full season this time around, and it was fantastic. They followed through with the story, brought it to a logical conclusion, um, but you know, for a show that's about a vampire hunter and his half-vampire buddy and his magician girlfriend uh, walking around and killing demons, it was surprisingly uh, like thoughtful in terms of its dialogue, really natural and, uh, and fun dialogue between these characters. And it took a really serious approach to the idea of who Dracula was. He wasn't just some menacing endgame final boss character. He, was, he had like a legitimate motivation for his actions and a whole lot of pathos to his character. Uh, so it was refreshing. And on top of all that, the animation was absolutely astounding. So if you're in the mood for a pretty, uh, a pretty quick watch that is chock full of great animation and uh, cool characters, definitely check out Castlevania on Netflix. I've been hearing so much about that actual show. I haven't had a chance to kind of check it out, but I feel like Netflix is doing a lot of good stuff, especially this year. I know we talked about it last year and a lot of our reviews have been from Netflix. So good, good, good on you. Good on you, Netflix. Yeah. I want to toss it to my other very best friend, um, even more than Mocha. Uh, we went to high school together and uh, I actually taught him how to play the guitar. I have the shredder, Mr. Blue it, Blue it. What's going on, man? What you've been sipping and what you've been watching? So what I've been sipping this week is a recent edition. Um, it is the White Walker by Johnny Walker. And uh, yeah, it's out and I it's the only thing that I have left in my cabinet. So I figured might as well sip on it. It's pretty solid. Is that uh, sponsored by George R. R. Martin? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh. It like when you freeze it, it changes from like the no normal way. thing. To, yeah. It's it's really cool. Um, it's it's a good scotch. I don't know scotch well enough to like actually enjoy it. And I think it's because it's not winter. I don't think it's the most appropriate for this uh, podcast. But like I said, I'm going out of town, and uh, yeah, I needed something, uh, something to sip on. Uh, as far as what I've been watching, uh, I stayed awake until three in the morning on Halloween night watching Haunting of Hill House and then pestered everyone in the group chat to actually do a podcast on it that we just haven't had the time. Uh, I will say this. It's phenomenal. Um, it really goes well from like the, I, I felt like it went well from like a scary, you know, type film or type story to like more of a psychological thriller. Um, and they did it really well. 
Yeah, I'm super bummed because we uh, we really wanted to have a, a separate section on that on Tuesday, but uh, looks like Halloween was on a Wednesday. So thanks for that, Blewett. I was excited, though. I did binge that also. I, did, I binged it on Monday, I think, and I had like maybe five or six episodes in that one day. So I'm super pumped to actually talk about it, kind of opened up a little bit more. Um, I really did enjoy one of those episodes that kind of give you a, a bit of a breakdown of exactly what's happening, and it's kind of like a, a bit of a mind fuck, so it was great. Yeah, uh, we'll just talk about it next year for our Halloween episode. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that. I, have, I will probably watch it by then. I think everybody should definitely check this show out also because, again, another Netflix. But this one came on really strong, and I was really digging it throughout the entire show. I even got kind of creeped out. I was kind of afraid to go to sleep for a while. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dealing with that one. And uh, I am currently sipping on some Apothic Red, the standard, so nothing fancy, nothing crazy. So hopefully we can kind of get through this bottle. And again, I'm also staying with Netflix, so it looks like Castlevania, Haunting of Hill House, and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Has anybody take a look at the show yet? No. I heard so it's really I good. Haven't had chance. Yeah, yeah, I haven't had the chance to watch it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. So I am not a huge fan um, by any means of uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch kind of storylines, but I think as I was going to finish uh, Haunting of Hill House, this popped up, and I'm also doing a rewatch, as I said, of uh, Mad Men. And so I'm like, oh, that's Sally Draper. Oh, that's cool. Nice to kind of see her in something. And it's nice to actually see her outside of that character of Sally Draper and kind of step into a different sort of character entirely. So I think the story is really interesting. They definitely kind of modernized it and made it, um, they're just kind of like explaining things from the ground up. So it's like, it's another, like, uh, uh, not coming of age, but it's another sort of, uh, beginning story. I know there's a better word for that. Origin. There you go. Uh, so it's another like kind of origin story, but I think it's definitely interesting. It's definitely kind of going a lot of different routes that I'm pretty pumped about. Um, so definitely go check that out. I think I'm at episode three right now. They're usually about an hour. Um, so I'm at episode three. I'm digging it. I'm hoping that it kind of uh, gets a little bit better, a little bit more action. But they definitely have been ramping up some some stuff. And they do this really weird kind of view that it kind of like zooms out and it almost puts like a fish lens on the camera. So it's a little odd. I'm curious to see how everybody thinks about that. So now before we get into our spoiler section, what I'm going to be doing is uh, introducing a new segment that we have called Send a Sip, where we're going to be giving recognitions and almost kind of shout outs and send everybody a drink to say, and thank you so much for being and caring for us. So I'm going to toss it over to Mr. Mouth of the South and Rylan, who you got to send a sip for? Yeah, so I'm going to send a sip out to Wyatt Ching. If you don't know who he is, he's director of Diablo Immortal, a new game that was announced at BlizzCon over the weekend. Uh, he's been through a lot of uh, he's been through a lot of probably unnecessary criticism directed towards a recently announced unfinished project that uh, he actually handled very well. I was able to get the uh, BlizzCon uh, viewers pass to watch all the panels and everything, and he made statements and everything. And I don't think he needs to go beyond that. So, bully to you, Wyatt Chang, for standing your ground, keeping it as a professional, unlike people that are running a crybaby tirade all over the internet over this announcement. I will send a sip right over to you, and I'll talk a little bit more about that on Wicked Good Gaming's Not Another Gaming podcast this week, where we will go more in-depth in BlizzCon. Wow, shameless plug, bro. 
Brian, if you want to have a uh, a conversation about that with me afterwards, that'd be great because I would love to vent about why this is a perfect reason why fucking nerds shouldn't be let out of the basement to attend <laughs> things like BlizzCon. I'm so fucking embarrassed for our kind. Yeah, don't worry. I'm preparing a statement for <laughs> what I record on Wicked Good Game. <laughs> That's so good. I'm so excited about that. <clears throat> Blue it. What you got for me? I'm gonna send a sip to Barack Obama, just so that we could put him in our mentions when we release the tour. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Barack Obama. At, at Barack Obama. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Just just thinking about him today. Just thinking. <laughs> For those of you listening uh, in the future, today is election day in the US. So uh we've all got we well, we've all got you on our minds. Yes. Daddy. I haven't heard of Barrio before, but I'm gonna yep. probably now call him Barrio from now on. <laughs> yeah, when you talk to him personally. Yeah, for sure. I'm gonna see yep. him next week. I'm excited. Uh, Mocha, what you got for me? Yeah, I want to send a sip out to our mutual buddy Andrew Ong, aka Ao, uh, out in Boston. Ayo. I don't know if he listens. I don't think he listens. But you know, today, as we mentioned, is Election Day. And of all the people I know, he is uh, the only person who not only uh, talked about just being like interested in the politics of this election in general, but also went out to scene and spent a lot of time phone banking and spent a lot of time berating me for not spending time phone banking. And he basically walked the walked the, the walk um, when a lot of people are just all talk these days. So a big shout out to you, AO, for being a little bit more than just woke. Uh, this tip's for you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, and I'm going to end off in sending a sip to everybody who voted today. Oh, thank you. That was me sipping. Um, thanks for doing that. I think it's very important. And I know that a lot of people kind of have choices and they choose to. And I know there's a lot of people that I know personally that doesn't have the ability to vote. So that's even more impactful when people have the ability and kind of actually go through with it. So thanks so much for everybody for there. That is pretty awesome. So good on you. Thank you for that. Yeah. If you're listening and you are in a relationship with somebody who didn't vote, cut them off, actually. No vote, no throat. 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, so with that, we are going to uh, take a break and get into our spoiler <laughs> section. So if you have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody, we will suggest you pause the actual recording, go watch the movie, pick it back up here, and we will see you soon for a full spoiler section of Bohemian Rhapsody.
of the Down in Front podcast. Thanks, everybody, for kind of tuning in. We are in our spoiler section. So we are talking about spoilers for Bohemian Rhapsody. We're going to be going ahead and reviewing the actual movie. So we broke it up into a couple different sections. As always, we'll be talking about the acting, the character. We'll talk a bit about like the depiction of sexuality in this actual movie. We're then going to go into you know the use of music, sort of lip syncing, sort of isolated vocals, or how they use that in the actual film itself. And then as we end it off, we're actually going to be talking about our favorite Queen song and any other experiences that come with that. So before we do that, I'm going to read the IMDb and then I'm going to toss it over to Brylin to start talking about some of your uh, acting character and depictions of sexuality. So it says, A chronicle of the years leading up to Queen's legendary appearance at Live Aid 1985 concert, directed by Brian Singer, uh, which I still don't... Yeah, we still have like some... Um, Bunny ears on that one, so definitely some air quotes because I don't think he's actually kind of finished the actual um, movie. And it seems to be he was pretty he terrible at everything. He didn't he even did. get close. No, well, I mean, he got enough to give him directing credit. So yeah, but that was like I think he did principal photography, and then he disappeared for like two months, and then and no one heard from him, and they brought the other guy in. They say he was staying in his trailer, not going to the set, and that's where they found him. Do you know who the other guy is? Because I've been trying to find who is this person that stepped in to complete like, the actual... He was, a, he was a director considered before Brian Singer. His last name's Fletcher. Yeah, mm. I thought it was like... Yeah, I was going to say Fletcher Munson, but that's something completely different. <laughs> All right. We'll see if we can kind of put that work in. So, Brylin, what you got for me? So, yeah, uh, when talking about this movie, I think it's only fair to start with um, Rami Malek's performance. So, Rami Malek, star of Mr. Robot, one of the worst TV shows to come out of, uh, come out in the last five years. Uh, he, I thought he was a terrible actor in that series. Uh, any other bit part of cinema, I was just, like, annoyed by his presence. But, damn. Um, one, the makeup team on this movie do an incredible job making sure that he just looks the part from like the sunken cheeks to the overgrown incisors in his face and having to work around that prosthetic as well as just convey the mannerisms of Freddie, but also kind of capture Freddie's attitude and also what Freddie stood for in terms of just like being a person regardless of his sexuality or just uh, how to live life but also being able to manage like the sadder more lonelier moments of freddy's life rammy uh hits it out of the park for it um i'm glad that they didn't tell him to sing like freddie mercury that's like an impossible task on its own but even the moments where he's just like auditioning for smile or they're just messing around in the studio and starting to record and everything he, I mean, he definitely brings, shows that he has some type of vocal range that can kind of blend into what Freddie Mercury is. But yeah, he wouldn't be able to do the actual performance itself. One quick note, uh, they actually did three voices. They did a little bit of Remy, Remy Malik. They did uh, a little bit of Freddie Mercury, which is kind of cool. Um, and yeah. then they brought in a professional singer uh, to do most of it. So like anything that wasn't synced to music was... Or, you know, like the original recordings was all mostly just all this third party. I forget his name. I was reading about it the other day. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and yeah. it's good that they did that just to keep it cohesive because there's parts that Rami just shines, especially when it comes to more of the quieter moments. 
like I love the scene where they're sitting on the uh, in the at the farm, and he's just starting to write lyrics down, which eventually becomes uh, "You're my," I believe it's "You're my best friend," uh, and um, the way he's just behaving while he writes something down, and he knows that it's going to be good. It, it speaks volumes to that character. Um, also, like when him and Mary have their first phone call after they've separated and moved out. It's such an awkward, but also very bittersweet moment because, you know, like he truly loves this, loves Mary, but because of who he is, they can't be together. And it's, there's that sadness to it, but there's that hope that he always has with everything he approaches that like, we're going to make it work out somehow, some way, even if it starts turning us apart for any reason. So uh, his optimism was always shining through even in the darkest moments. Uh, and I think um, one of my favorite moments also is when he gets the diagnosis that he has HIV and he's walking out and there's a uh, another patient that's definitely far more advanced with AIDS and he just does the AO call back to him and Freddie just turns around and just gives like, that very weak, very mortal AO back to him. I thought that was very beautiful, but at the same time, just um, all the feelings just rush through in that scene like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, I really enjoyed that that part of it a lot. That was very sad. Um, but I'm glad that they at least put some sort of these small like tidbits of like there's there's something deeper happening. There's something deeper kind of going on and um, how their music that they've created already. Right. Because this is near the end of the movie, how their music has already kind of inspired and created so much passion for other people that it's not just a band, right? And they mentioned this also. It's not just a band. It's not just music. Like, it definitely means a lot more. Um, so well, pretty cool. I, I'll remark in on that, too. Like, I think... So they made the the remark on how um, most pop songs aren't six minutes plus long. You know, they're uh, tight three yeah. minutes, and then you're off to the next one. And I think it really drives through the point that Queen was, like, huge before they were huge like they never had that quiet moment of like hey let's like try and make it it's like no freddie was coming out in the most flamboyant vest you've ever seen to meet some local guy who randomly heard their demo tape from soundcloud and was like gonna check him out a little bit (laughs) yeah they definitely had a, a meteoric rise to fame almost immediately after their first album that's a good word it's crazy also, Brown, along with the prosthetics, uh, we know with the face and the makeup, uh, they also worked with a movement coach. Um, and I thought Freddie Malik, or no, uh, Remy Malik's, uh, yeah, that's a Freudian slip. Um, his movements were so spot on. Like I had a, I had a Queen DVD growing up, uh, of one of the, a couple of performances, which was hilarious because Freddie Mercury just gets more and more naked. The more the show goes yeah. on, he like starts <laughs> off in like full things with like a little vest over the top. And then he ends and I'm pretty sure just tidy whities and like boots and that's it. <laughs> and it's, it's the phenomenal. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so like, you know, I used to burn that thing in, uh, and, um, you know, you, you have a little nighttime and pop on some queen, uh, and he has such a definitive way of moving around the stage that maybe like someone like Mick Jagger comes to mind of like someone who has uh, that definitive stage presence, which isn't yeah. isn't yeah, necessarily like yeah, it's like there's are inspiring performers 
like someone like Robert Plant, you know, easy early 70s rock and roll guy. Like he was our inspiring on on stage, but he didn't move like that. He didn't have like that signature move. Um, and Freddie Mercury had so many and, and to try and incorporate all of them into the and make it look natural was freaking phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think uh, like a lot of the uh, the side actors uh, supporting cast, they did a good job too. Like, even though we don't get as much time with them as we do with Freddie, um, everybody that played Brian May or Roger Taylor or John Deacon, they actually had their moments in this movie and I'm glad they did. Uh, I like that we see that whenever they're going through the creative process of making a record, especially like that first record, um, it's always played like to be kind of humoristic that it's a clash of all these different personalities, just thinking up whatever wacky shit will actually work and see if it works, like throwing pennies on a snare top or uh, dousing it with beer or um, just playing on any different surface just to make a different sound happen. And part of me kind of hopes that that was actually kind of factual, that they were just like, here's $300, we only got a few hours, uh, let's throw everything at the books and see what happens. And it was really cool to see, like, they, even though Freddie kind of, like, drove the creative, like, structure around what an album would sound like that everybody had their input or, or everybody had an idea that they wanted to, um, that they wanted to actually bring, or they just played off one another to make a compromised idea that actually works. Like, even though Brian May gets, I, I'm in love with my car on that album. <laughs> I mean, there's still room for Bohemian Rhapsody at the same time. And um, I think it was always really cool just to see, like, when they're talking about doing We Will Rock You, um, Brian May is just, like, kind of figuring, like, how do we actually incorporate fans into our music? And um, that John Deacon wants to do a disco song. Everybody's like, why disco? That's nuts. And he starts playing the bass line. Everybody's like, that could be sick. Let's play off of that. I always liked all those moments because it was just fun to see them mess around whether they were in good attitudes or bad attitudes that uh they were able to bring out bring some realism to wacky moments as well and you enjoyed both at the same time i, I will say this that it was really cool so my band we we kind of have a similar thing like bands don't really work unless people are giving honest feedback. Oh yeah, we're we're the next queen. Uh, just my news. Oh okay, cool. Queens come. Queen. Uh, that works the other way. Queen, we're coming for my news. Um, but where like so my 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 buddy he plays bass and sings. He writes a a lion's share of the like the skeleton tracks, um, and then I fill in all the other gaps and then tell him which parts suck and he needs to rewrite or just write them myself. Uh, and so I, I, it's kind of like cool seeing that they're not following around Freddie Mercury like some genius and they're groveling and like, oh, no, keep us with you. Like Maroon 5, you know, Adam Levine could do whatever the hell he wants. I'm not saying Adam Levine and Freddie Mercury are anywhere near each other in, in, in skill set. But like, but Adam Levine is what makes Maroon 5 tick. And if that dude dropped out of it they would be the no ones. Whereas Queen, like all the other guys had legitimate talent. Like Brian May is a phenomenal guitar player. Um, they yeah. could all sing, you know, like not saying they'd be the same band, but having someone who 
not having Freddy, the band still probably works in some capacity. Obviously not yeah. Queen, but in some capacity. Uh, and it was really nice that yeah. they threw that in there and didn't make it just like Freddie wrote every single thing like frickin' Pete Townsend did in The Who. Roger Daltrey did not sing, write a single lyric, which blows my frickin' yeah. mind. Like, that's uh, unbelievable. Pete Townsend's literal genius. Yeah, oh yeah. He, he's written yeah. every single guitar, bass, and I think Keith Moon was too drunk to listen to, like, you know, uh, Townsend's drum lines, so he just kind of did his own thing, but, like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah it even, wasn't like uh, even Roger Taylor, the uh, drummer for Queen, he released uh, two albums in the 80s when they were taking a break and everything. So, um, I mean, everybody in that band is mad talented in some way. And if it's not music, they are already are set up for being very talented in some field, whether it's astrophysics or electrical engineering. They all got some like, wow, you, you're just like super educated and just a smart dude that know likes to play music and that's awesome um also thought i i actually appreciated lucy boyton throughout this movie as mary i thought her moments were always really done uh very well and also uh it was interesting to see because this relationship is very unique relationship that even though at one time they wanted to get married and I don't know if they officially ever got married in real life or they were just common law. But, um, I mean, it was Freddie's best friend in his whole life. They knew, I mean, the writing was on the wall that, yeah, he wasn't going to be able to be with her in any traditional marriage sense at all. That, But they became neighbors. They still stayed in touch with one another. And it was interesting to see how that actual friendship grew because usually if that happens, I mean, usually the Hollywood like portrayal of something like that is they go their separate ways and you see, and one of them's either villainized and becomes uh, out of the picture or becomes the villain of that story. Or um, it becomes like this huge like hurdle that, or uh obstacle that's been lifted off of the other person that's been quote-unquote oppressed where here you have two individuals that are on equal grounds and they're just don't know what to do about it and so it's actually handled very human very real way which i appreciate yeah i like the fact that it wasn't you know as clean or it wasn't something as easy like it looks like even every step of the way in the movies that each and every scene there was always something different and it was growing and taken back and forth and exactly how you said is a very fluid but very um disjointed at the same time but it kind of worked at certain points and in certain sections and certain scenes, you know, Freddie was holding back. And then later on, you can clearly tell that Mary was holding back because they were just trying to be there for each other at like difficult points in their lives. Uh, but I think the simplicity of when we first see Mary uh, and, you know, she tells him to go to, uh, she like, he said, I like your jacket, which was a women's jacket. Right. And he, and she, he, he, she tells him to go um, where she got it from with Biba, and he went over there. And their interactions just with the fact that he's trying on and putting on women's clothing and let Mary kind of put makeup on his face and how there was just no issue with that. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that nobody – it wasn't like a big deal in the fact that it was just something that, you know, she just accepted for him for who he is right off the bat also was very uh, refreshing, and it was just nice to see. Yeah. I, I mean, this. I – <sighs> Well, I was going to say that I appreciate that from Mary's character, but 
I felt like a lot of the movie, and we can go further into this later on when we go deeper into uh, the sexuality of the movie, but I feel like a lot of this movie uh, went out of its way to like show everything just being okay about uh, Freddie Mercury's expression of sexuality and the people around him. And I feel like uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, especially in the UK, where uh, homosexuality had only just been decriminalized a few years uh, before Queen got together, that uh, it wouldn't have been as uh, hockey-dory in his actual experiences of interactions with some people. And I felt like it was a little too uh, a little too easy on, on what that could have been like for, for him or the other people in his entourage at that time. Two things. I mean, one, I, does anyone, has anyone looked up uh, if, when he came out? Like, was he already, like, a so, famous rock star? Because my, so my for, assumption is his... So, Freddie Mercury heard, actually oh, never officially made yeah, a statement about his sexuality. Um, yeah, because to me, from what I read, Freddie Mercury was someone that just had no closet. You just accept him for who he is. I mean, yeah, like, you know, the, the public uh, media would, like, question him and pester him about it, much like we saw in the film. But he never actually made an official statement. You know, he had his... Uh, he, he lived with his uh, lover... Um, Jim yeah. Hutton for a couple for plenty of years uh, near the, like going into the end of his uh, his life, but there was never an actual statement about it until uh, posthumously. Yeah, Even though it was one of those things where like as Brylin mentioned, it was he sort of like he was Freddie Mercury everywhere he went, and uh, he kind of like let his freak flag fly. Even though he didn't go on the record of saying I am X Y Z. Because I mean I, I genuinely don't know. Like I wonder if if he was treated any differently if he like you know was. Mo- quote-unquote came out later when he was already a big rock star it would have kind of been interested to like to see that play out i mean i I, again i don't know you know if someone's a multi-multi-millionaire leading the biggest rock band on the planet they're probably not getting pushed in lockers like you know like if they were in high school yeah and came out in high school and had to deal with that then the way the movie framed it made it seem like he really came into his own when he had a little bit of momentum behind him um and maybe didn't have to deal with that sort of back, like cultural backlash. Yeah, I mean, I mean, being an elevated rock star definitely get gets you some protections, especially right. when you're a global rock star. Um, but I mean, from everything I've read um, about Freddie's life, I mean, he just seemed like the person where that was unnecessary to make a big deal about. Like, this is a guy that publicly announced he has AIDS the day before he died. And so it wasn't he because like they say in the movie, he didn't want to be like the poster boy for AIDS treatment or anything. He wanted to live his life the way on his own terms. And that's the type of person he was. Yeah. So an interesting thing about that, uh, Brylin, as you know, the poll, like not even talking about his uh, HIV status is that it's, it's a difficult thing to do with Freddie Mercury's story in general is tell exactly X, Y, Z or like ABC. These are the things that happened because he was so uh, quiet and reserved about the yeah. details of his personal life up until the day he died. Um, and, you know, we can we can look at the notion of him announcing his having contracted HIV uh, so late into his progression with it as a situation where he was like, oh, well. Like, people don't need to know about my life. I'm Freddie Mercury. I'll do whatever, and I'll just say it now because it's, you know, far enough along. But you can also look at it as the fact that uh, the 80s uh, was a 
terrible time regarding uh, like health and health awareness in the general public. Um, the AIDS crisis was a legitimate crisis. There wasn't really a, an idea of how to stop it. Um, it was, as I mentioned like off camera earlier, it was referred by a lot of people colloquially as gay cancer. And one of those things that just identified you as a gay person, even if you were, even if you weren't back in the day. Um, and so, you know, there's also that question of, well, maybe he just didn't want to talk about, like, discuss his HIV because, again, that's another clear signal to people that uh, he is a gay man or a bisexual man or a sexually fluid man uh, in a situation where he was trying to avoid having that conversation with the public or with the media in general. Um, but it's difficult to actually say for sure it was either A or B because he was such a reclusive and uh, a person with his own personal details. Hmm. Yeah. One last thing about his sexuality. Uh, I was so afraid they were going to straight wash him. <laughs> the, the first trailer that came out had it mostly him and Mary. Uh, and then they spent the first like half hour of just pretty much them two together and I was like, oh no, what are they, <laughs> like, are they just, is it, is, are they just going to be a loving couple for the rest of the movie? Because historically speaking, I think he left all of his money to her and the cats. Yeah. So like, the state, the cats, everything, you know, it's the royalties. She was a yeah. huge, like part of his life and they could easily have just made her the primary, like love interest the entire film. And so I'm glad that they. They kind of went there. I think Mocha, you had something on on Jim. Uh, I'll let you explore that because I, I kind of I completely agree with you on it. That he looks like too much like Rob Delaney. Oh, he looks so much like <laughs> Rob Delaney. <laughs> For a while, I really thought it was him. I thought it was uh, what's his name from um, uh, Peter from Deadpool Two. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um. Yeah. The situation with Jim Hutton's character is interesting because, you know, obviously this movie took some liberties with, uh, like, the actual events that happened in Freddie Mercury's life. Um, you know, his story about his relationship with Jim Hutton, as far as we're aware, as far as I was able to find out during some doing some research on this, is that, you know, he met Jim Hutton uh, in a bar, like, at a nightclub, and they were... They hit it off, but weren't able to do anything about it. And then, like, a year and a half later, they crossed paths again. And then it blossomed into this really exciting relationship for him. Jim went on to be his hairdresser, and they stayed together for the rest of their life. But um, in this movie, it was just... It felt odd, because it felt almost like Jim Hutton's character was really just there to way... Oh, there as a way for him to... For Freddie Mercury's character to have, like, a sexual redemption at the end. You know, uh, in this film, things don't really start going badly for Freddie Mercury's character until he comes out to uh, uh, to his then fiance, And I, I, I got the impression watching this film that his sexuality was directly tied to the shittiness of his life. Like the gayer he got, the worse his life got. And look at how he lets life spiral out of control the more like gay guys he surrounds himself with and the more he dives into that culture. And But here's Jim at the end who is a, who is the, the one thing that... Uh, who is an example of what a lot of people who are miseducated about like gay culture, gay people, um, think that they don't see in the gay community, right? Like a lot of people will think, oh, like gay men are just super promiscuous and are nothing like are super into drugs and sex and hedonistic. And Jim was the opposite of that. He was this really wholesome character. And he was just there for Freddie Mercury to get to at the end as the checkpoint to say, hey, I've turned my life around and I'm not that kind of gay anymore. Now I'm like, and everything will be better because of it. And so it just kind of sat weirdly for me. Um, and it's got to be weird, I feel like, for Jim, for the people who knew Jim, too, because 
it seems like everything I've, I've, I've come to understand about them, he was way more than that. Like they were, you know, they had a really meaningful relationship that went on for years until his last days. Yeah, it's interesting to see how they handled um, the other characters' reactions to uh, Freddy's sexuality. Um, it, it, like, for example, like the band, uh, it, I mean, they're cool with Freddy as a person or anything, but when Freddy invites them to one of his parties, they start to get uncomfortable because, I mean, granted, it's three straight guys with their wives and everything in this cavalcade of gay opulence that, you know what, they like, like they say, it's like, hey, it's just not our scene. It's like, we could sit here and have drinks, but if you're going to ask us to partake anything, sorry, that's not going to happen. We I still love that, you, Freddy. I took that and less I thought as a that gay was thing. I mean, it, it's it's a difference in lifestyles, regardless if it's gay, straight, or not. Yeah, regardless I thought it was, thought it was decadence I mean, of the '80s, rather than yeah, like. And it, but, and like what the uh, and but that what's in. really cool about that scene though is that they don't treat the band as like homophobes or anything about it. And I appreciate that. That it is that this is just one part of Freddie that we. We'll never really understand. We just uh, we'll just accept you for who we are, and if you want to do this, that's fine. Just don't expect us to be there with you, type of thing. And I think that was is good. They kept that pretty real. Um, so I really quick. I just I appreciate that little like interaction that you two just had there, Blue and Brown, because like you know, uh, Blue, are you saying that oh it wasn't because it was like they were cool with him being gay, and Brown saying well it wasn't about him being gay it was about the lifestyle that he was leading yes that's absolutely true but i don't think that comes off in the movie i think it comes off as like as soon as he starts surrounding himself by like a whole bunch of like party crazy queers his like his he starts ostracizing the people from him and his life you know starts that downward spiral so i think that's an interesting at least communication between you two because that that highlights the uh like that sort of discordance that i felt watching it myself yeah i I definitely interpret it differently than I, from what I've read of most reviews of it. Um, and I also think it's really interesting how they handle his manager. Uh, what was his name? Peter or Paul? Um, Paul. Did he actually do that stuff? We don't know. And I'm pretty sure this is a biopic. You could definitely get out the fact book and tear it to shreds. Um, but it was interesting to see, like, I think they should have had some scenes where, have freddy like just make his own choices to go to like a leather bar or something that he's not with peter or anybody he just needs kind of like freddy time and freddy needs to let his freak flag fly because that's who freddy was he was promiscuous he (laughs) did bang anything that moves uh regardless of uh sex from what i've read uh and (laughs) that um that i think it, it is a little unfair that they kind of paint like this negative force in his life kind of pushing him that it does come off a little bit as him pushing him towards this lifestyle, even though we do see Freddie enjoying parts of it, uh, regardless if it's this guy that has negative intent that wants Freddie for his own or anything. Two well, things. I thought it was also strange that um, kind of going on that Brylin when we see him drinking, right? And we see Freddie, like, throughout the movie kind of drinking and there was no sort of issues. But then when Paul sort of came into the picture, that's when the heavy drugs came in. That's when the, like, that's when everything, especially what Mocha was talking about of the majority, the majority of the time that he's surrounding himself, 
that's when I felt like it was like the the bad part, quote unquote, bad part of the movie, which was kind of a, which is kind of a bummer because it just so happened, and much like that article that you sent me, it just so happened to say that the villain of this movie is another homosexual character, which is not really fair to say. Yeah. So, so two things. First of all, Paul definitely did all that crap. Uh, I have n- I haven't done any research, but it was the '80s, and he was a person in some sort of position of power. Like and there was drugs. Like there's no there's the no there's no way in my mind he didn't take take advantage of Freddy. You know, like none. Um, the second well, part one is something I can confirm is that at the very least, Paul did have that tell all moment after they're falling out. Um, it was done in an interview in a magazine, not on TV, but um, but he did you know go to the media and say, hey, this is all the dirt I have on Freddie Mercury. Take it all. That would be wicked funny if they did it in a magazine. Uh, on screen and they just had like the article scroll by like Star Wars style and you just had to read it um, the second thing is Mocha that party scene that reminded me of uh, another 80s uh, movement um, Caroline has gotten me into this whole like real life murder thing uh, friend of the show of course uh, and so one of the recent uh, like white chick podcasts that she's been listening to uh, they did a full episode on the Club Kids, which was a like mid to late '80s oh, yeah. New York City like group. And so, I've this is how my life is now. Um, I've seen like six documentaries about this thing, and listened to like fourteen podcasts. It's yeah. Um, and so, uh, seeing a lot of that to me, the villain of those scenes isn't the queer folk hanging around because it i'll draw the parallel to the the club kids and this is why i didn't see like them surrounded by like queer people and then the band kind of like didn't enjoy it um but it's the drugs that are involved in that like they they make the point for the, the club kids that like they they were just these zany people that were hanging out doing fun stuff and you wanted to be around uh and then they all started doing heroin and then they started murdering each other, or at least the one guy did. And so, and so, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, like, for me watching that scene, all I could think of was these documentaries um, and how, like, they all start off as, like, well-intentioned, reasonable human beings that are just living full expression of their lives. Um, and then, fun fact, cocaine apparently makes you party longer. Uh, and so, well, hey, I want to express myself for longer. I'm going to shove my nose full of this stuff. And then, and then you become like that shell of a human being that you experience. And so for me, that, that scene was, was pretty well done of like, not like gay folks are bad and, and the band just doesn't want to be around this queeritude, but like, it's, it's something that like, it shows the descent into he's becoming a fundamentally a different person due to outside influences, not his own brain chemistry, chemistry. So, and uh, this, this, uh, like, it's a callback to what I was saying earlier. I completely agree. Like, the issue in that, in those scenes were the uh, elements that he was putting himself into via, via partying and drugs and all this stuff. But the only people who do hard drugs in this movie are the queers. The only people who have these wild parties are the gays. And it's, and as, yeah. it, like, outside of those areas, every time he's around straight people, everything is perfectly fine. No one's doing anything more than having a beer. Um, and the it was British just like pretty reserved. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, gay folks do like know how to party. That too. <laughs> I, I mean, I can definitely agree with you, Mocha. I had a, 
I definitely when I think the second time that I watched it and I was watching it for other stuff, I was definitely getting more of those vibes of this is I, I'm curious. I feel like the the people like the showrunners and the movie, the people who created this movie had one take of what they wanted to try to say, but they maybe didn't quite know how some of these things would go off to the uh you know to the but what keep on going nothing no. just uh they, this is not entirely sure like whatever they kind of put into this movie they wanted to show his life but you know all you had to do is kind of show a couple other scenes of people that were straight that were actually there whereas everybody that was in his party was even even the point where i thought was kind of a little kind of frustrating was when he was there was a song that was saying another one bites the dust and that was the first time in this movie that we heard that song and you see freddie there was like no audio he's like walking through this club that people like grinding on each other it looks like it's, it's clearly like some sort of like um sort of club that's exclusive because it was only men that were there in this actual club and clearly that was all that he wanted to do and i'm like but it didn't have it didn't have to be. I'm, I was curious to see at that point in the movie why they chose to put that song on it because then later on they were talking about the the AIDS the the, the AIDS virus and everything that was happening too. So I was like, it, I, I was just curious to see how they uh, kind of overlaid that song with that particular scene, especially in that time. So like my interpretation of that scene. Yeah, especially like the fact that he was in that CD dark club with that that music. I think we the director was trying to tell us that that was the moment, like that was when he got it. And uh, so I don't. I think it was very intentional that another one bites the dust was playing uh, while he was in an underground like leather sex club. Uh, I mean, maybe it wasn't intentional, but that's how it just came off watching it, which like left me with a bit of a weird uh, weird taste given the uh, the approach. So let's talk about the music. Let's talk about the lip syncing because we had talked about it a little bit, a bit more of the isolated vocals. Let's talk about the end and sequence because not, maybe not everybody didn't like that final show. Who knows? Uh, so I'm going to toss it over to Mocha. Let's start with you. So one of the uh, strong points of this movie, and I don't even know if I want to call it a strong point, but maybe uh, one of the um, you know benefits of the subject matter is the fact that everyone loves Queen. Um, anyone who's going to see this movie at least has a cursory enjoyment of Queen. And so getting to see them perform and hearing their songs played is going to feel good no matter what. Um, the last performance at Live Aid was really cool in general. Like, it was the high point of the film. You know, it was his return to glory after having, like, sunk in, sunk in low. Um, but for me, as someone who was already a little bit bored with the film in terms of how kind of formulaic it was from start to finish... Uh, I felt like it just dragged on and on and on. And it was really cool to see because a lot of the like the, the choreography, the way he moved, the uh, little gestures he made, like the kiss he blew to his, his mom, like all of that was like spot on if you watch the original Live 8 performance on, on YouTube. And it was super impressive. But also at that point in the sto story, like I wanted more from Freddy. And instead I just had to like sit and watch almost the entire Live 8 performance. Uh, with like a really like weirdly CGI uh, with like a CGI audience <laughs> around him. Yeah, yeah, and the CG Wembley Stadium like cannons were well, they, kind of just weird. They did actually build that stadium, so it's it's funny because they built the yeah, stadium. So that was a, that was a yeah, well, no, no, they because they <laughs> tore down the that's the old Wembley in the movie. It was old Wembley. The new Wembley stadium is completely different because they still play the, football and stuff there. So they had to actually build the old Wembley Stadium as a practical effect. 
But the thing that I was curious about is they had a practical effect, but they still put CG people <laughs> in it. And I was like, bitch, no, just go all practical. What are you doing? I'm I don't sure. Think, I don't think you can get. Yeah, you can't get a hundred thousand people to. Well, also, I, just, I, it's just see, tell them Beyonce's playing. Tell people in London people. there's a free Queen concert well, there. No, yeah. so there were actually people there. Like there was a lot of people there. Yeah. It wasn't everybody, right? But they were there was a lot of practical effects in this final sequence. In this, and I also I did a little bit of homework too. <laughs> uh, this was actually the first scene that they shot of the movie, which was yeah. weird. So the first opening sort of first thing that they did was this uh, this final sequence of the movie, which I thought was very interesting. They they want to do it that way. Um, so they did have a lot of practical in there. I was just very co confused as to why they chose not to just do it all practical. They can get enough people to at least want to be in the movie. I thought they. It looks that like they only did the stage. Really good. Yeah, it looks like they only did the stage, not the full stadium. They probably had like a thousand people, like the they front did, rows. They did the full stadium. The panning, no the way. No way they brought a full. The... No way. The panning shots reminded me of the rave scenes in Zion and Matrix 2. <laughs> it reminded me like the over the overpans in Gladiator on the Coliseum. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of the crowd in uh like any FIFA game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't very good. But you know, to um kinda Go against what you said, Mocha. You know, I think that was, uh, of course, I'm, I'm sure everybody's going to say this. That was one of my favorite sort of moments there, especially because uh, I hadn't quite seen a lot of this stuff. I didn't really know Queen too much. I think the first time that I was introduced to them was in high school because it was our final song, uh, like our senior song. And I'm like, nah, I don't know who Queen is. Okay, cool. But I knew their music or at least kind of familiar with some of their songs. And it wasn't until I met met up with Dylan, you know, friend of the show. He's been on the podcast a, a bunch that he started telling me about a lot of their music. Yeah, huge Queen. <laughs> but he started telling me about a lot of their music. And I was like, okay, cool. Like it still didn't quite like kind of sit with me in this movie. It didn't, you know, this movie just kind of like put a bit of an exclamation point on it because – at least for me and why overall I enjoyed the movie is I just didn't realize how much of an impact that their music and their personas happen to have on everybody so much so that we're talking about uh, a movement of uh, this band and what they've actually were meant to represent in the 70s uh, and then basically start in the 70s and kind of throughout and even things that we're dealing with in society today of people still not having the ability to see another person for who they are and why do i have to you know list what my um uh you know my, my sex is or what i like classify as right like why can't i just be you know queen isn't something that anybody has queen is just queen for example like one of the lines of the movie so th that's why at the end you know there was a lot of pan shots of a lot of people and you know they had like there was a father and son and they, it just definitely showed much more of an impact that I just never quite seen before so it gave me a bit of a different perspective even so the movie started almost where it ended right the movie started when they're walking up but i it was curious to know that it started when you just see freddie walk in and it's just Freddie. He's jumping around and he's having a good time and he walks on stage. And that was the beginning of the movie. Then we fast forward all the way at the end before the sequence. And not only do we see Freddie, but we see the entire band behind them. And they're all going up there as a group, which now we know from the way of the movie that happened with the falling out and coming back, it made a lot more sense. And it made it even more impactful that they now 
pulled the camera back a little bit to show the entire group. I'm pretty sure it was two different shots, but they at least pulled the camera back a little bit and showed that it's an entire group. So it was a way more harmony there and all the stuff that was happening with Live Aid and the fact that we had the scene right before his father, which that was by far my favorite sequence of the movie. Yeah. When he talks about doing good deeds. Um, good words. Yeah, good words, good thoughts. Good words, good thoughts, good deeds, right? And, you know, I actually choked up in, like, even the second time I saw it with Brylan, I was like, God damn it, I knew it was coming. Um, <laughs> that's why I enjoyed, the, like, the final sequence of the movie. It felt like it was a culmination of all these things that we just didn't quite see. And then we get, you know, uh, a better version of what we saw on YouTube, because the YouTube version is not the best. So we have a better version of what we saw on YouTube with the actual audios, which is great, right? And it sounds a bit better because you know, the technology is better from the time frame. So I think pulling all that stuff together, it was amazing that thank God you didn't actually sing Rami Malek. Um, I th I'm glad that you just actually kind of put those on there because I would literally listen to not only that final sort of a number, musical number, but I think one of my other favorite scenes was actually when the credits were rolling and they just had that live show of them singing. Um, I always want to say, don't stop, can't stop, don't stop me now. Um, so that was another favorite because he was just they were just in it, right? They can just clearly kind of sing. You can clearly tell that they're just jamming out. So um, that's why I thoroughly kind of enjoyed that final sequence. Yeah, uh, I mean, Queen's music definitely has a universal appeal. Uh, fun fact, um, Queen was a very powerful global rock band, but also at the same time, they just had they were like kind of mild to moderate success in the U.S. It was like the big market that for whatever reason, they weren't able to crack. Uh, and Live Aid is actually like that concert that introduces Queen to the to the U.S. And we kind of catch up with the rest of the world, which is, I always found is fascinating. And uh, that plus Wayne's World coming out. Um, I always, I, I mean, I just love how they take this nice, like just lighthearted approach to explore like their creative process. Um, for the bits, like, especially like when they're in the um, record execs, uh, the EMI execs uh, office, what, I mean, just uh, for, I mean, just to say like Mike Myers cameo in this movie is fucking amazing. <laughs> and um, just when they, when they talk about like what their next album is going to be they they don't talk about songs. They talk about concepts. They talk about opera. They talk about disco. They talk about, um, doing uh synthesizers and they're like oh that's crazy and that's wrong and gross but like hey let's try it out and see what happens um that's queen they're going to they're going to make art they're not there to make a rock song uh because that's the type of band they are um i like that the the song choice that they had there you could choose 20 other different queen songs and still have a great movie driven by queen which is amazing um Queen, I like that. I mean, I, I expect I expected them to pick the popular ones, and they definitely did. But they also made room for some lesser-known Queen songs. Like, I was happy they had Innuendo in there. That's a song that I love by Queen that not everybody knows about. So it was really cool to see that they gave a little uh, bit of the lesser-known songs some. Uh, uh, Blue it. What you got? First of all, before I start. This is an SM7B. It's a broadcast microphone. Uh, people use it a lot in 
in radio, but uh, this is also the microphone that was used to record the vocals on Thriller. This microphone is what's called a front address microphone, meaning this is supposed to be pointed at the mouth. The one huge mistake, I'll give them the music technology lingo and all that fun stuff was like pretty spot on. The fact that tape like breaks down over time and that you can't just hammer away take after take after tape on take on it. And like how they had to like route certain things and just commit to it uh, was was awesome. It was the technology was good. They put this damn thing against the the guitar speaker like this. This is called a side address microphone. If it's positioned like this, this isn't it. They got it wrong. They got it wrong. Oh my, he's such a they got oh it wrong. God. And it's such an easy... Look at this thing. This, just point this at the sound. The, whatever makes sound, just point this one at it. Woo! Also, you don't typically record yes. guitars with this thing. So, yeah, it's more of a vocal thing. But, anyways. Uh, I honestly, I poked, I poked Caroline, uh, a friend of the show who happened to be at the movie theater with me. Um, I was at the movie theater with... I was to, to be fair, it was my mom's birthday, and I took her to go see this movie. Um, then Caroline, <laughs> friend of the show, was also there, um, and I kept on. I was poking her on the show. I'm like, they got it wrong for like four minutes. She's like, I don't care. They're recording Bohemian Rhapsody. Shut up. Um, <laughs> she was but, like, Don't poke anybody in the movie theater. That's yeah, weird. no, it was strangers. Um, I was there by myself. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a couple things. Uh, speaking to the technology side of things, Brian May has one of those signature setups. Like, you, you think of Jimi yeah. Hendrix with a Stratocaster and the Marshall stacks. It's like, that's that's pretty cool. Then The English penny pick. Yeah, 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 that was awesome. Well, ZZ Tops, I thought was, I forgot May did that too. ZZ Top plays with a peso, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but Brian May, he uses uh, an amplifier called a Vox AC-130 or just AC-30. I might just be thinking of that support perk in uh, Call of Duty. Um, and he uses a guitar yeah, called the Red definitely. Special. Um, and it is, uh, it was You're hand. shit up. No, I'm not. Dude, he it's hand not. built this guitar with his father. Um, and so the fact that they had the Red Special. And so May, what he'd do is he'd keep all these like amplifiers in like a circle. Like he, he did. He has a very, very unique guitar setup. And I freaking love that they went through the detail and showing that because they could easily have thrown a couple Marshall half stacks behind them and it would have had the exact same uh, like same deal on the movie. Um, yeah, and I think uh, John Deacon, the bass player, even built an amp for him too. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Uh, the other thing is that in that scene recording Bohemian Rhapsody, I loved like so. May is a phenomenal guitar player. I said this earlier. Um, he is also, he like stretches the gap between like clinical and, um, and like emotive, you know, like he's not fast enough to be like the, the super shred guys, but he's, I wouldn't say he's like bendy, like, you know, blues cat. And I love that scene when talking about the guitar solo, which is saying like, all right, well, loosen it up a little bit, but not that much. Cause he has this like weirdly operatic wave. I don't know. That's, this is a stupid. It's very point. melodic. Yeah, but it's not like it's not bendy and bluesy. Uh, this is a stupid part. I I think only like four guitar players that are just me that will like enjoy. But um, what was I gonna say? I I did love the that scene when they came up with "We, we Will Rock You." Um, Queen is like Queen. I would say Queen is like the apple of bands. Uh, the reason I say that is that. They do things not necessarily on the cutting edge, like doing a six minute long, like rock song, rock opera 
like concept albums were a thing in the 70s like everyone did them but like what i was saying earlier they're mostly established bands that had like a, a couple pop records before them um and so here's this upstart band that's just kind of doing it right off the back again the genre of music is already there but they just came around and did it uh you have later on in it the, when they do another one bites the dust kiss did a freaking disco album you know like everyone tried to do that style of music but they did it just like better than anyone. Like the Kisco album sucks, you know. Uh, they should have blown that thing up in Comiskey Park. But like Queen was one of those bands that just would take an established paradigm um, that was still relatively new and then just make it their own unique, awesome thing. And I think that really drove home through the movie how well, like how great the musicianship was to kind of navigate those bounds. Um and then uh, I will go back to uh, what Moko said earlier. Uh, they shouldn't have ended on the full concert. It's like pains me. I, I'm sorry. I, I should have slid this comment yeah. in earlier, but like it, it pains me that like, I just kind of wanted to see more of like after the concert because they, they shifted things around. Um, Freddie Mercury, they think was diagnosed in like 86, 87 live aid came out in 85 and then he was with Hutton the whole time, which by the way, I forgot about that dude. I straight up when he knocked at the door, I thought I was like, am I supposed to know him? Like, why is he important? Because he was such like a, like tiny little insignificant earlier part of it. Um, I would have loved to have seen a couple things from that show and then go back and dive into him dealing with AIDS, which is super, super dark, but yeah. it's something that they could have explored because previously you guys were right. He's such a quiet figure on his own life that like for a lot of people, this would have been their first time to really see that play out. Um, and they got all the guys on Queens as, as executive producers. Unlike the movie queen had like about a four month uh, break. They, they, it wasn't years. Um, they literally released an album the year before Live Aid. They finished a huge world tour four months. And then they were still a various, like, well-established, well-practiced band um, by the time they really, they hit that mark. Uh, which was, again, I have, oh, Brian, was it you who was saying if you brought out the fact book, this thing would just fall apart by the, uh... Oh, yeah, be yeah. sure so, so that's one of the big ones, but like you left this huge chunks, what, six years, right? He passed in 91. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you like even pull up, uh, the music video for these are the days of our lives and just look at Freddie Mercury and that's done in 1990. Um, yeah, you could definitely tell something's wrong, but it's interesting. Like, what's the story behind that? Like, how did he actually champion through that late stage in his illness and still make something that's beautiful and amazing yeah i I would love to see that story and and ultimately like every new song they introduced at live aid i was like oh cool i like this story but this song's four minutes long and that's just four and and it's getting pretty late in the movie like i want to see more one other thing spitballing here uh i would have loved to have seen a little bit more of the interaction with the like the other genres because i i kind of forgot that queen crossed over with grunge like, for me, Queen is, like, the quintessential late 70s, early 80s band. But I don't really think of them as, like, being a year after uh, the Beatles had their run. 
you know, with Smile starting in 1970. And I also don't think of them as being a year away from Nevermind. Like, that's kind of incredible. And, and for a band that was so consciously aware of other music genres, um, that would have been a little more interesting to see that interaction, that headspace. Yeah. I could probably rant about the music for a while, but I think that's it. Uh, Mocha, you got anything, anything more about music? Um, no, I mean, we, I pretty much said all the, the pizza I had to say. My only other thing was just adding into uh, what, you know, Blue and the rest of us were talking about regarding the end of the movie. I agree. I think there was a lot more to Freddy's life that would have made for good material um, beyond Live Aid. But um, instead, what we got was, you know, Freddy's AIDS or his HIV being the point of tension leading up to the Live Aid concert because, you know, he's got... I guess what the movie depicts as AIDS throat, where he just like has a scratchy throat um, the entire time leading up to the the, the concert, and then uh, he gets to the concert, and it's sort of like a callback to his line from when he's in bed with Lucy early in the movie, where he says, uh, "You know, when I'm on stage and I'm singing to that crowd, I couldn't sing off key if I if I tried," and so it just goes to show, oh yeah, you know, despite the fact that he has you know all this other shit going on. He's on stage, and that's where he's home, and so he's going to like belt out his lyrics, and that's like a good uplifting moment. But again, there's more to that man uh, beyond that. And so for me, it was really disappointing to watch again like that 15 to 20 minute long concert, and then have it end, and it just go like to black, and it says Freddie Mercury died from AIDS. Uh, roll credits. <laughs> like I just wanted, I wanted a bit more. So uh, while the music itself was cool and it was great watching Remy Malik you know, do this one-to-one impression of his live A performance. I wish we, we got a little bit more past that. Sure. I mean, I can agree to disagree, but I, I would like, I would have liked to seen more after, but I don't know if I want to necessarily see, um, I know you said you're dealing with her living with, you know, having HIV and having AIDS. Um, I'm always, always curious to see because if they wanted to not probably kind of show that just as a respect for his life, maybe, I don't know. Cause if that was maybe like some dark times, but that's probably why they make movies, right? So we'll see. So let's get into our conclusion. So we definitely want to talk about a bit of a recap of the movie of how to necessarily feel about it. But I'm also curious to hear everybody from either before or after you watch the movie, you know, what is your favorite Queen song? I'm going to start it with Rylan. Yeah. So uh, I'll say this. I, I love Queen. I listen to Queen a lot. Um my favorite Queen album is Innuendo. It's one of those albums I would take on to a uh, deserted island with just because I love the story ab- about it and all the songs there are amazing. Uh, but right now, my favorite Queen song is Princes of the Universe uh, because Highlander is a badass movie, and I watched it again recently. Yes. Um, nice. But ultimately, uh, for Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, this movie definitely suffered through pretty much a decade's worth of production headaches and nightmares and everything. And I was surprised at how much I ultimately enjoyed what they put up on the screen. It definitely has its faults and everything. The plot is very simple and basic and to the numbers. But this performance of Rami Malek's plus just the music of Queen bring an emotional elevation to this film that makes it better than it should be. And I appreciate it for that. Um, I, I definitely want this movie to be longer. I definitely wish they got to the 90s part of Freddie Mercury's life. But I still loved the reenactment of the Live Aid concert. I thought it's just a phenomenal undertaking and it's amazing to put that on screen. Mocha, what you got? 
All right. Well, as far as favorite Queen songs goes, it's really hard to say. I mean, so much of what they've they've made are just like instant hits, and even the things that weren't aren't common radio hits are still just amazing to listen to. Um, I do, however, have a special place in my heart for uh, "I Want to Break Free." Um, I think it's just an awesome song. I love eight, the '80s and '80s music, and that song as a whole is has this very like this very very nostalgic '80s sound to it with the the simple synth and uh, the uh, the approach to like the the song uh, construction in general. But also the music video is classic and great. And you know you need to be a badass rock band with a great legend. That legend needs to have a moment where they're bucked by mainstream society. And the fact that that video uh, was banned from MTV because Freddie and the, the gang were dressed in drag, which is an awesome thing to even think of them doing at that point in time in history, is just badass, just pure like rock and roll badassery. So uh, that song and that music video has a special place to my heart. Um, as for my conclusion, you know, I think that this film was beautifully shot. And I think from a cinema to cinema photography standpoint it was phenomenal and i loved it the acting was good too but it did the incredibly difficult job of taking a story about one of the most dynamic and interesting musical figures uh in our generation and turned into a fairly boring and kind of paint by numbers approach to his life um and that's going to stick with me no matter how much i enjoyed the other parts of the movie um, you know, as someone more eloquent than I put it, this felt less like a biopic of Freddie Mercury and more like an adaptation of his Wikipedia page. And that is uh, unfortunate for me. Yeah, I'd be curious, even talking about that, Mo- Mocha, the one thing I thought about as this movie was ended and I was walking away, I'm like, you know, if this is how they're going to make uh, this movie off, like, if this is how they make this sort of movie, I'm curious if once once they do make another movie, and I'm sure they will, once they do make another movie of, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince, I'm curious to see how that movie is going to be. They, I know they already made probably one or two movies of Michael Jackson. I don't think they made a movie about Prince yet. Um, but I'm curious about well, that. And I also know that there's a movie coming for Elton John. So I'm curious to see how that is going to be because that's already done. Um, so I know that, you know, looking at those three movies to be that's going to happen I'm, I'm, I'm super curious how this sort of a movie will affect anything else after it yeah interesting thing about uh the elton john film uh same uh studios doing it and that director that finished up brian singer's work that's the movie he directed oh interesting yeah hmm. okay so i wonder if That'd he's be- gonna have a a, a mid movie like gay breakdown <laughs> and he's just surrounded in decadence if it's just the same plot points but just with then they start playing. Uh, if, I'm still standing, and he just gets back up. Also, in 2020, you know, they're going to come world. out with a Liberace movie, and it's going to be the same movie. It's already out. It's yeah, I fight for a world where you know people can have straight breakdowns. I fight for that world. Um, so, to me, uh, to echo those points, I, I, I think Remy Malik was amazing. Um, I think that because. It's always hard doing a movie that everyone knows the major hits from, uh, no pun intended, because you have to hit them. You have to have the start of Queen. You have to have them be at their pinnacle and their like most decadent. Um, and then you have to have the slow decline and then the comeback for Live Aid. And then you have to have them die. Like that's all, everyone who is vaguely aware of Queen as a band knows those important hits. Um, and it seemed like they kind of shoehorned it, like they wrote that out and then they just filled in the rest with like whatever they decided to do and basically in Queen songs. Um, 
so I, I kind of feel bad because I, I think they were they handcuffed themselves with the source material. Uh, that being said, they could have gone a lot harder in certain aspects and given us a movie that we weren't expecting uh, rather than a movie that was the easy way out. Um, yeah, my favorite song by Queen, though, is most definitely Fat Bottom Girls. I'm so glad that they had the one moment in the mansion when he smacks one of their behinds and then she rings the bell in response. And I was just like, all right, that I know it. That's going to be that's going to be my one fat bottom girl reference or bicycle race, whichever way you view it. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Queen is the I feel like they're the most universal band I've ever heard of. And it's and, and it's very lucky that we got to see a movie which so many people could interact like this these dudes because they aforementioned spread almost three decades well two solid decades they crossed through so many different boundaries of music and they they somehow inherited all of those boundaries um that you doesn't matter what you listen to you can find a queen song that speaks to you and uh mm-hmm. it was nice to see how at least some of those behind the, the silver curtain on on some of those uh songs were created Shout out to Miami Beach. Yeah. <laughs> well, so great. Dude, such a great actor. Uh, yeah, so I'll wrap it up. And uh, I would say, you know, my favorite Queen song, I started with Another One Bites the Dust because that was uh, our senior song for some strange reason. I thought it was kind of weird. And I, I remember voting for Michael Jackson, but I got outvoted. Whatever. But, you know, Queen's still good. Uh, but I think after I saw, and I love Shaun of the Dead, uh, don't stop me now. I think that was probably my favorite song by far. And then, you know, looking at like, I guess I was like also just reading through some of the lyrics and I'm like, Oh, this, this song is super simple there, but I just love the fact that some of the words that he says in the song is phenomenal. So I added that to like my running playlist. I was like sprinting to it today. So that's definitely my favorite uh, song right now for queen. Um, I, I definitely enjoyed this movie. I felt like it was kind of an ode or sort of like a tribute to a lot of the songs, much like you're all talking about right now. Um, I, I definitely did not go into this movie thinking that it was going to be any sort of acting that's going to be done with it. You know, obviously going into, the, going into the movie, the only thing I've seen was the fact that Remy Malik, who was great in Mr. Robot, Brylan, I, you said that an hour show. ago. You shut, you shut your mouth. It's horrible. You shut, you shut your mouth. Um, I think he was great in this film. I like the fact that it was a focus on other people, not just him. I was really, I was really concerned that we were only going to see him the entire time. Um, but it, we, it, we definitely got a sense of other people and how everybody else necessarily feels either about him, even the reporters kind of berating him about his sexuality and all these other questions and how he was firing back and having like some honest sort of approach in that interview. So I thought that was really great. Um, but I'm glad that, you know, we definitely had a chance to kind of just live with the songs. We saw this songs almost kind of sort of come to life as it kind of felt, uh, with the people and band and what they were kind of going through. So Definitely enjoyed it. Um, definitely enjoyed it a lot. I would, I would definitely say it does not. I, I wouldn't mind it being a little bit longer, but without cutting some stuff in between, uh, in the middle of it. So there could be some scenes and some weird takes that could have been gone. Especially it felt like Paul was in this movie a lot. So maybe kind of trim that dude out a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that is going to be my take on Queen in Bohemian Rhapsody. And with that. We are the Down Front Podcast. Thanks so much for our review of Bohemian Rhapsody. I'll toss it over to my best friend and Brylin. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, yeah, you can find me slapping the bass on Twitter at Brylin, B-R-I-L-U-N-D. 
Uh, you can also find uh, many movie and TV reviews on Instagram at I am Brylan. You can also find me as the host of the Gamescast, twitch.tv slash from Podcast. We have started playing through Red Dead Redemption 2, and we are getting close to the end of Spider-Man as well. But also catch up on other things I'm going to do this week, where I'll be on Wicked Good Gaming's Not Another Gaming Podcast this week. So check them out, too. They're a bunch of good guys. But clearly, this is the better podcast. Superior podcast, yes. Boom. You hear that, Dom? Uh, Mocha, what you got? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter trying to make frilled lizard neck vests a thing at Mocha Mike LI, as the Lord intended. Um, unfortunately, you cannot find me at Mocha Mike. The elderly man who owns that title is lost in a gay orgy somewhere, and I can't find him to get the name back. So uh, have fun out there, buddy. Mocha, um, you are trying your best to find him, though. <laughs> oh, Lord knows it. Lord knows it. I'm coming for you. <laughs> Literally. Um, aside, from, <laughs> aside from that, you can find me on Instagram at Mocha Mike, where I do a lot of my photography work, and on uh, medium.com at Mocha Mike, where I post some longer form reviews of the things that we talk about here. Cool. Uh, Shredder, Blue, what you got? What shows you got coming up? Uh, nothing. We should have a Halloween album out soon. Even though it's not Halloween, I kind of messed up and just <laughs> forgot about it. <laughs> Second Halloween. Halloween 2019 <laughs> release about a year early. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You could find me also if you want to reach out directly uh, to Jesse Rand's Lonely Lamp uh, at ymail.com. Again, that is Jesse Rand's Lonely Lamp at ymail.com. But when I get famous, I'm going to buy you a house right next to me. <laughs> be great. Just buy it next to Jesse Rand. Needs, I will. <laughs> he needs another. He needs another lonely lamp participant. Well, he won't be. He won't be lonely with me. So it'll be great. Uh, check out more of our work at downandfrontpodcast.com. You can definitely find us anywhere and everywhere on the internet. Just put, type in downandfrontpodcast.com. For our Twitter, we at underscore D-I-F-P. You can find us on Instagram at downandfrontpodcast.com, as well as Facebook as downandfrontpodcast.com. If you like what we do, you want to support us, you can definitely choose to become a patron. You're going to be getting early episodes and even bonus content. So we've been actually churning out some of these other bonus content materials, things like last calls and other sort of graphics that we've been kind of creating. So definitely check that out, downinfrontpodcast.com and patreon.com slash downinfrontpodcast. Thanks so much for everybody for kind of hanging out with us. Our next review is Overlord. I don't know what that movie's about. I thought it was something to do with a video game. No? No. No? Okay. No. So that should be fun. Uh, I'm excited. You're excited. Drink some wine and have a good time. Goodbye. You guys like that, right?